make those impossibilities to possibilities. And no matter what skill set you have, I can guarantee that you are ordained to do something. You may not be a shamash or a shamashta, you might not be a fasha or a bishop or a, or a doctor, but you're, you're ordained to do something in life. You've got a purpose, and I think you've got to use that purpose, unlock it, unleash it, un, unwrap your gift that God has given you, and use it for our own purpose. Hey everyone, this is Ninorta. Welcome to this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast, episode number 129 with George Rasho. With Christmas being only a few weeks away, it was only fitting to sit with George to discuss his most upcoming project with the Assyrian Church of the East Sydney, the film called Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the story of Jesus' birth, and George tells us how COVID-19 impacted the church's annual carols by the cathedral where they share the true meaning of Christmas and how the idea of the film Emmanuel came to fruition. Before we talked about the film Emmanuel, we got to hear about George's childhood growing up in Chicago and how seeing the production of Home Alone 3 be filmed near his home led to his curiosity for the creative arts and filmmaking. We also talked about how moving to Sydney became a stepping stone for George's passion to work for his church and nation and the different projects that he worked on within the church. George emphasizes that we need to use our talents or gifts towards our nation so that we are a force never to be reckoned with. Lastly, the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligaracus and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracus. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or at 847-982-9516. And now, here is George Rasho. George Rasho, thank you so much for joining us today on the Assyrian Podcast. Thank you very much, Ninata, and thanks to all listeners out there worldwide. Greetings from Australia, like they say. George, I know you've you've done a lot of work in in the church and and with a lot of Assyrian projects and things like that. But I think it would be great for our listeners to kind of get to know you a little bit more, and then we can dive into current project right now, which is what you're working on. You're a very busy man, and you're focused on that right now, and then your past projects. But I want to kind of go into where you were born, where you grew up, and take it from there. Yeah, thanks for um, offering this time. On Assyrian podcasts, I'm a huge fan of Assyrian podcasts. I listen to it whenever I can. Um, and the beauty about the Assyrian podcast is you can actually go back to it and listen to our other fellow Assyrians and their achievements. And I think it's inspired me as well. And I've had a talk with you previously about we need a little bit more of this um, in our nation. And I think media is a platform that can reach out to everybody globally in their homes and their cars and hopefully that will elevate us at some point and hopefully bring us one step closer to having our own nation our own country absolutely thank you for that so george why don't you tell us where were you born where you grew up i'm a bit of a mixed salad i was born in sydney i was only one 
we moved to Chicago, so I'm a bit of a American Australian. So my R is still American. Um, my dad is an American citizen, and my mum's Australian Australian citizen. I was born here. My brothers were born in Chicago. We lived there for about maybe ten years, and then we came back to Australia, and that's where I started started my education in high school, and then. We moved on from there. We started. Uh, I started my university or uni, what we call, and I got my creative arts degree and 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 my shamashuta. Before we get into all that, let, let's let's backtrack yeah. a little bit. Sorry. So you said you were you were born in Sydney. You grew up in Chicago. What part of Chicago? For all my fellow Chicagoans out there. Ah. Uh. I don't remember. I, actually, Skokie. Skokie was where I was raised, and I went to. I remember my school was called Madison Elementary School. I remember the Home Alone was shot around the corner from there, and that's how I remember it still. Yeah, I think it was the third one, and I remember seeing them shoot it. And there was a bank there. I don't remember the name of the bank, but it's somewhere around Skokie for those that live around that area. So. It is one of those childhood memories that I'll never forget.、Um, I've had a fantastic time in Chicago. Have you been back ever since you left there? I think the last time I went there was about maybe five years ago. I do miss it a lot. I do travel the world a lot, and I'm trying to get 40 countries by 40. One of my plans and goals. So I try not to repeat the countries I've already seen. So、where、Chicago's、where are you at with your 40 countries and by 40? I'm on 24. So、I'm, okay. Just over halfway there. Okay,、uh, halfway there, but COVID's put a put a pause on that, right? Yeah, it has put a pause on it. So I'm only visiting those countries in my dreams at the moment. But, <laughs> but hopefully,、um, next year we'll be back on track, and it's one of the first thing on my agenda. Okay, that sounds great. You've you've always been involved in in certain causes or or the church. What what event or what moment sparked your interest in that? Was it when you were in Chicago or was it when you moved back to Sydney? I think it's when、uh, when I actually arrived in Australia. When we arrived to Australia, I don't have much family here, but the first thing we gravitated to was the Syrian Church of the Saint Hermas Cathedral, and we our neighbours who. Happened to be Marolaham of、um, the Bishop of Western Europe.、Uh, we we instantly connected to them, and they were really really heavily involved into church since then. And I remember being in third grade or year three, like we call it.、Uh, the first thing we did was go to Sunday school, and from Sunday school we developed this greater relationship with the church. Then evolved into choir. So it was a bit of a promotion for us. Um, from Sunday school to choir, and then from choir we used to go to prayers every single day,、um, the evening prayers or slaughtered lilia that we call. It was very hard because being young and there was no one else that was as young as us. We were known to be the young shemashes、uh, at the time, and there was a bit of pressure. But at the same time, we had a lot of passion towards the church and the millet or our nation at the same time. How old were you when you were ordained as a deacon or subdeacon? I believe I was seventeen as a subdeacon. I remember being in high school and I was being prepared to be ordained as a subdeacon. So, in order for you to be a subdeacon, it's not something you or a deacon. It's not something you ask. It's something that you are ordained to be. So that's what ehaminachachna. Like we are 
it's not that you're chosen to be, but every human is ordained to do something, some part. And obviously my path was to be a deacon. And we believe that it, if it's in God's will, it will come to you. And through the journey I took through the Sunday school to the choir and then going to evening prayers, it was a, a bit of a calling for me. Okay, George. So you said that you had you were a lector and a deacon around the age of 17, 18. So you were just about to start university at that age. How was it like integrating your role in the church and then starting university at that point? Honestly, it was very tough. Um, there was a lot of pressure. Learning the Syrian language or Aramaic or Shanatika is extremely hard in my opinion. But I did go to Sunday school every, uh, sorry, Saturday school every Saturday on the weekend. And our Saturday school here in Australia, I'm not sure if it's different there, but it's it's a language school. I went there for about seven years or so. And after that, I started actually teaching it. Um, and I taught there for about nine years after that. So it was always part of my life. It was very hard to balance. I wasn't really working at the time. I, I focused more on my studies, focused more on the Syrian language learning. And obviously being a deacon as well comes with, you know, Bible study, preaching. So I was working seven days a week, uh, so to speak. And the school that you were teaching at, was that the Assyrian Daklat school? That's correct. So Assyrian Daklat school was just known as the Assyrian school. And then it became a little bit more official, uh, which was fantastic under the leadership of uh, Rabita Carmen Lazar. It changed to the Syrian Diplomat School. We we had a bit of a platform, um, a known name in the languages schools Australia. So it became a little bit more official, which benefited the people. And and our name started going out there. And the other day I noticed I was applying for something and one of the options when it when it came to languages, what other languages to speak to, was Assyrian. And when I saw that, it, I, I was stoked by it. And I'm like, okay, we are getting somewhere. We're being recognized, even if, it's, even if it's something little, but it's one step forward. And I'm always a passion. I've got a passion towards seeing things. Like I get really, really happy. I get really, really proud. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it's my little things, your little things, and collectively as well. Absolutely. That brings something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. So would you say that the Assyrian Ducklet School was like the first seed that started for the current school that's up and running right now in Sydney? Oh, absolutely. I always say that those that have an Arabic background or um, such as Iraq, Turkey, etc., the Middle Eastern world, they have a little bit of an advantage when it comes to learning the language. Why? Because the vowels, the letters, the sounds are very similar to the Syrian language. Now, I'm not giving myself an excuse, but I was born in Australia, raised in Chicago, surrounded by American friends, surrounded by Australian friends. So learning the language was a little bit harder than the average person who was born and raised in Medinkha uh, or the Middle East. So learning, learning the language itself was hard. The Syrian school taught me a lot. I started there when I was in year four or fourth grade. Now, fourth grade in the Syrian school world is like you being, you know, 15 almost so um, it's a little bit more behind in a way but because you're going only once a week 
you got to make sure that you maintain it with homework. If you don't have homework, you create it. And interestingly, the, the word alphabet, in my opinion, I think I'm right, but alphabet comes from alphabet, which mm -hmm. is the first two letters of Assyrian. And I always just saw it that way, even though the Greeks might say, well, that's our letters, alphabet. <laughs> so <laughs> you can argue it, but it's just it was my driving force um, to learn my language. That's amazing. And I think language is the most important thing to keep a culture al alive. And was it you solely, you know, focusing on that? Or did you have your family, friends, your parents push you like, hey, get up, you have to go to go to you have to go to school, because I know, sometimes that has been a challenge for many other children growing up. And especially yes. for for me, and like me and my sister, my mom constantly in our ears, Hamzim Surat, Hamzim Surat, Hamzim Surat, Hamzim Surat. And I thank her to this day for constantly, you know, drilling us about that. Because if it wasn't for that, and she would have just ignored us, then I don't think we would have continued to speak the language. So was there a driving force behind your eagerness to learn? Or was it just you? Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, being a child, the first thing you want to do is go out and play with your friends, speak English. It's the most comfortable language to speak. It's the most convenient language to speak. But if we do not have parents or we don't have that influence to speak our language, eventually we'll lose it. Now, I know I'm starting to sound like my mother now, but I do appreciate it now that I did have that courage. I, the good thing about my situation was I was surrounded by others similar to me that had similar interests. So there is that quote where they say, tell me who your friend is and I'll tell you who you are. It's the power of influence that help me go through what I wanted to do and achieve those goals. My goals were to learn my language and to work for my community until the day I die. And that's something that I always carry on my shoulders. So like you said, language is a very important thing. I know it's just a way of communication, but without it, I think it would take a lot away from our nation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let's go back to your days at university. What did you study? Um, I studied quite a bit. I officially have the creative arts degree in in sociology or social science. I've got a diploma in human resources, and that's because that's what I do now. So I'm currently a human resource manager at Samsung Australia. I've done diploma in theology. I've got a diploma in graphic design. So I've got a lot of creative, but also sociological lifestyle and it's the the two don't really mix well together but i make it work i remember nope. being in, being in um in uni or university studying sociology all my presentations were so dramatic you would think it came straight from hollywood and i would score really big on the creative side <laughs> so so it was just something that i always for me the way i communicate my message is through my creativity Mm -hmm. and I think that's very important and I use that I used to use that at a steering school when I teach my my kids I taught them through a lot of visualization and I find that that really worked in fact it was about two weeks ago one of my students from maybe 15 years ago came to me saying I remember playing a film I, I played the I, I made a movie called Bruna Soto or the prodigal son which is the parable from the bible and I used that as a way to learn the language because they used the script in the Syrian script and they were only in the four, fourth grade. 
So for them to know that they've got a teacher who's got a bit of that creative side, for me, it's just another way of learning the language. And so it that, really, really worked. So that was one of the assignments that you gave your students to, to create a film? Yeah, we created a film. Uh, it was really weird because all the teachers, you know, how they're like, I love it. And they're, you know, slapping the ruler on the, the whiteboard. And here is Rabbi George Rasho outside in the field doing Hollywood production <laughs> for the prodigal son. But it was really, really well because at the end of the year, it really showed that we are no different to any other culture. We're not, we're not Basurim and Khine. So, we have to continue doing that. Everybody, like I said earlier, everyone is ordained. So there's a lot of people go, well, women have no, you know, nothing to do in the church. Women this, women that. But you've got to realize that everybody's ordained to do something. At the end of the day, we all bleed red. We all are humans. We're all the son of God or children of God. And I think, in fact, I know that we're all ordained to do something we are best at. So mm -hmm. I might be creative, you might be good at design, you, uh, my friend might be good at reading or writing. So collectively, we can work together to achieve that one goal. And just because I was ordained as a deacon, it doesn't make me greater than someone next to me. And in fact, deacon or shamash or shamshanuta means to be a servant. So it's not something that I look at and I go, oh, I'm now elevated. I'm more promoted. It, for me, it's more I'm working three times as hard as I used to without being a deacon. That's very nicely put. So you mentioned the film that you had your students do. Was that your first film project that you that you started? Or did yeah, you have was, other ones yeah, that you had I done? Say my first project ever was when we bought the house that we're living in now. And we bought it, I think it was the year 2000 from memory. And I remember my dad, my dad just doesn't, like typical Assyrian, the first thing he did was concrete the grass. That was the first thing he did. And then he started renovating the house. And all I did, I'm not very hands-on, but all I did was sit there recording the before and afters. So I started with pictures and back then, picture slideshows that can pan and zoom, that, that was an effect and I was so intrigued by it. So I started with that. And then I, at the end of the renovations, I surprised my family with a bit of a premier night, red carpet night. We sat down to watch my dad's renovations. <laughs> so it was, for me, it was like, wow. And my parents were amazed by it. And I think they saw that, that I had this passion for it. So that was my, I think that was my first, you know, side project, um, how old were you when you when you did that this Hollywood premiere of your unveiling of your new home? About 10, 11, maybe. Wow. So okay. I was quite young and I just I was just fascinated. I remember when we left just before we left the US, my parents treated us to Disneyland and it was just our way of kind of leaving America behind. And we went there and I was just more interested. I wasn't interested about the rides, I was interested about the cameras that were shooting those stunt cars you know and i was just constantly intrigued by it and that's what and being a syrian it's such a not i always have that there's a stigma about filmmaking it's not you know the lawyer it's not the doctor it's not the all those other 
professions that every Assyrian parent wants their child to be. Mm-hmm. But for me, you could be successful in anything you take, whether it's a, a filmmaker, whether it's a you know a, a retail worker that later develops into a businessman, perhaps. So there's always something that you can look forward to and grow off that. So that mm-hmm. was my first project. So all your life, you're involved in the church and, and doing projects in the church. Can you tell us about certain projects that you did within the church besides the teaching in, in the Assyrian school and being a, yeah, a so, deacon? Yeah, so the Assyrian school was separate to the church. Obviously, we had a relationship, but there was no, uh, it was owned, it's been looked after by the Assyrian, the Assyrian Australian Association. AAA. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, and we then have the Assyrian schools, which is not teaching the language. It's more of a mainstream school. Uh, it's it's a college. It's a primary school, or in your case, you guys call it elementary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a high school as well. So that's obviously your mainstream school with the elements of Assyrian teaching and also religious teachings as well. My involvement with the church from being a deacon, then started getting into being a president for the Youth Association Sydney. And I was in the committee for a very long time, not just as a president, but as a a graphic designer, as an events coordinator. Again, I used my talent Mm -hmm. to make sure that our church succeeds in in one way at least. Mm -hmm. And one of the, again, projects that I did for the Syrian Church of the East Youth Association was I don't know if you heard of it, but it was called the Youth's Got Talent. It was bigger than Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> really? So it was humongous. There, so this uh, is this is like the American Idol, right? Correct. Yes, and and I think it's still on YouTube somewhere. Did you perform or? Oh, I didn't perform. I actually produced oh. it. I produced <laughs> it and I hosted it. And I was a bit of a shy person back then, but when it comes to producing such event i just get so intrigued i'm in this like little dream and i go out there no matter how fearful i am so myself and rima Hamel, uh, she was my host and she was very involved in youth group as well and it was the most beautiful unforgettable night and until today people still talk about it because we had a syrian talent mm-hmm. one of the criteria to perform at youth got talent was you must be at least a Syrian or part a Syrian. So whether your mom or dad is a Syrian. So it was really focused on our nation. And again, it was building a platform for our people. And from that, we expanded it. We, we started having news, local newsletters or newspapers call us. So it's definitely a way we can get our nation out there and, and our our faith out there as well. And we do have talent. Mm-hmm. And I've ha- I've been requested, hopefully after this next project that we'll talk about, I've been requested to bring it back, except oh. 10 times bigger. So <laughs> I don't know what that looks like, but it's doable, it's possible. And who knows, maybe we could do a global one where I fly over to Chicago and we can host it with the Syrian po- podcast. So. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, who knows, anything is is possible. Dream big is my motto. So if you can't dream big, then you might as well not dream at all. 
after Youth's Got Talent, what was what was next in store for you? After Youth's Got Talent, it was very, very successful. We actually did a second show. Uh, I think it was a year or two after that. And we, I'm telling you, it was actually sold out. Like we actually charged the audience to come and watch and it was completely sold out. There was people literally viewing the show from outside. I don't know if you've been to the former Ninue Club, which is now called Eden Receptions. There was people lined out outside to view the show. So we, we made a second version of it. Mm. It was bigger and better. And that's how we always market it. It's always mm-hmm. bigger and better. Huge prize money. And we actually had a sign up with Sony Music the second time around. So we were always constantly looking ways to develop the la- from the last time. Mm-hmm. And nothing should stop you from doing what you believe is impossible. Mm-hmm. And there was times where people would laugh at me and say, yeah, okay, Sony Music Records, yeah, there's no way you could do that. And in fact, within a month, it was done. There was a record label with Sony Music. We had a huge prize money. Again, it's purely just to show that we're no different. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was our way of promoting our nation again. Mm-hmm. That's awesome that it, it got to Sony Music. So that's really, really cool. George, can you tell me about Carols by the Cathedral? Yeah, so Car- the Carols by the Cathedral, we always used to do Rabbi Shura, who is one of our most amazing musicians in Sydney. Actually, we robbed them off you guys. So <laughs> we, we poached him from, uh, I think he was from Chicago originally. And he was a musician that played in front of Persian kings, I believe, Iranian kings back then. And he can play pretty much any instrument. And he he used to do dramas. And because we were involved in choir at the time, we used to do the nativity drama. It was literally the same almost every single year. I still learn. I still know all my lines. And I was the angel Gabriel for 10 years. So I was a very big angel, Gabriel, compared to the kids because after <laughs> 10 years, you had all these six-year-olds and then you had me <laughs> dressed up in tinsel. <laughs> I know you like my voice. I know you like whatever, but I think it's time for me to retire because I feel a bit odd when I'm playing with six, seven-year-olds. It's like, uh, and I'm like, <laughs> thank you. You agree with me. So it was time for me to move on and I had a successor and <laughs> did you have to train them to, to take to fill in your shoes oh, and be yeah. playing Gabriel for ten them. years? That's right. I had to train them how to carry that ten kilo tinsel around you and while you maneuver your hands and arms and say Shlama Lachim Lita Shapata. So it was it was hard work, but at the end we got there. So Carols by the Cathedral is is a big production. So yeah, it was great. It was a great way of showing the uh, the story of Christ's birth. Of course, we can't forget what Christmas truly means. And from there, obviously, we grew older. We I finished my degree in creative arts at the time. Kasharaman being uh, was Shemashraman at the time, and Maroraham was Kashanase back then. So we all used to think of new ways and develop and be innovative in a way and to you know social media kicked in by then and there was a lot of challenges and unfortunately the word christmas is being gravitated more commercially rather than removing christ in christmas and replacing it with the cross for example so we thought okay what could we do next and from that drama that we did with 
Rabbi Shura, we developed the idea of, hold on, let's do carols by the cathedral, where we perform the drama outside in front of the church and have, and we'll light up the church, the cathedral, which is, uh, funnily enough, um, St. Hermes Cathedral is a heritage site. We cannot touch the outside of it, so it's protected by the government. Um, and it's the first cathedral in the Fairfield in Fairfield City. Can you tell us why it is a heritage site? What makes it a heritage site? Purely because it's the first cathedral in Fairfield City. They okay. listed it officially as a heritage site. And what that means is it's protected and looked after by the government externally. So we cannot amend or change anything externally. We can do anything inside, but not from um, the outside. Interesting. So it's something to be proud of, actually. Wow, that's that's really, really cool. I did not know that, actually. So we we created this Carols by Cathedral. We have a choir in front of the church. And if you go to the Syrian Church of the East Youth Association, Sydney, on Facebook, you'll find amazing pictures. And we usually invite a star to come in. Uh, let's say a C grade star from our Australian Idol or this Australian The Voice, they would come and participate as well. And the night becomes really epic with vocal artists, the, the drama, the dramas that we play on stage. And then, of course, we've got to have Santa Claus at the end and the fireworks to end the night. So wow. that's how we developed Carols by the Cathedral. And it's, and if you, oh, if you're ever out here in Sydney in December and and uh, our Christmas is very different, we have Christmas in shorts um, mm -hmm. because it's boiling it's a, hot it's here. It's a summer. It's a summer yeah, Christmas. It's a summer Christmas, which I do not like. I still prefer the American style, <laughs> uh, that coziness, the snow. But I'll make you guys jealous with we get to go to the beach on Christmas. <laughs> we have the barbecues and we get the shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> well, not anymore, right? That's the thing, COVID, this thing called COVID slammed us and pretty much got us into shutdown mode. But I don't know, I hear that a lot of people in America talk about the Syrians in Australia and, and we're like we act like we don't know, but we know how good we are. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, but, but no, George, in, in all seriousness, you, Sydney has really set a footprint on on Assyrians, putting Assyrians on the map. So bravo to all the Assyrians working in Sydney, Melbourne, pretty much all of Australia and, and, and New Zealand. I think you guys have it have it pretty covered. Yeah, so I think um, if you look over across the globe, you'll find that no matter where we are, and this is the this is why I believe the Assyrians are especially, you know, got that extra blessing from God. Whilst we don't have a country, our focus then remains on our people. So I think the church, um, and I'm not, I might sound biased here, but I do believe that the church becomes the mother and father of our nation because we don't have a land. We don't have countries. We've got multiple political parties, and I don't want to get into that. And it's really good to have that, um, that landscape of our political parties. And it is definitely driving force to get closer to having a country. Mm -hmm. But I see it a bit of a blessing in disguise in a way. And not, whilst it might sound a bit negative, but I think we've really focused on our people. And and just recently I was having a chat with Khan Khraya, a, a non-Assyrian, and he was just saying how Assyrians are very 
clustered together and they just remain together. They don't like going outside their circle. They're a bit fearful of that. And I told them that historically that that's what's happened back in our, our, our homeland, that the Twilight Pirsat, but we didn't have that opportunity to go outside our little circle of community. And what would happen like with ISIS coming in, trying to destroy us and erupt us, I just find that it's almost impossible since we're so dispersed globally. And I think every, every community, globally speaking, has got something they do that others haven't done. And I think uh, the Syrians in Australia are very, very energetic. I think that's the best way to describe them. And they're very, very hungry to advance further and further, whether it's by building through, uh, through the avenues of schools. Um, I think now we're touching at a lot of media-focused areas. So we've got Barashib, the Syrian Church of these has Barashib, which is also another great podcast focusing on um, maybe controversial topics is how I describe it. Um, because that's what people need to hear these days. And Assyrians don't stop there, regardless of COVID coming in, stopping us from doing carols by the cathedral, which we've been doing for many years. It was very sad. And Khashar Rahman, uh, who's the parish priest of St. Hermes Cathedral, came to me. I go to him, what are we doing for carols by the cathedral? Social distancing. That would look a little bit awkward or spaced out. And we have tough restrictions in Australia, although we, I don't think we have any cases at the moment, daily cases, it's still risky. And we have some restrictions from the government that we can and cannot do. And it just doesn't seem to be fair to put, you know, invest a lot of money into something like Carol's by the cathedral and not actually have people there. So being a filmmaker myself, I said, let's create a film. And what we could do from that is put it on YouTube live so that everybody can watch it. So nothing can stop us. Even COVID can't stop us. Mm -hmm. We've got, we're lucky that we have technology like YouTube and the internet and websites and social media, it just doesn't stop. So opportunities are endless. And where there is a will, there is a way. And I think this is what we have done has actually become bigger than we expected with with the next project I'm a, that I'm about to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. So we we changed it so that everything's digital. We built a website instead of having stalls outside where people can make their purchases, their show bags, etc. And we made it virtual for the time being. So the the mission of Carols by the Cathedral is to express the true meaning of Christmas. So because of COVID, you guys could not do carols by the cathedral. So you shifted ideas, so to speak, in a way and changed it to a feature film that the church is producing to, again, relay the true meaning of what Christmas is all about. That's right. And we live in an era where, you know, it's been foretold that Christianity will be persecuted. You believe in Christ, you'll be persecuted. It's an expectation almost. Mm -hmm. But for us, whilst it's a challenge, we overcome it by, by looking at other avenues and seeing what we could do that will cater for our people today. 
especially the millennials, where they're put in schools and being educated something against our beliefs. So it's a game of tug of war. And we got to constantly fight to bring our kids or our children or our people back into the right circle. Because it becomes hard to bring them back. Mm -hmm. When we lose them, it's hard for them to come back mm -hmm. because they get gravitated to that fantasy land of don't believe, you don't need to believe. There is no such thing as Christ. Mm -hmm. Forget about Christmas, which means literally Christ's Urbana, Mass. And let's replace Christ with a cross as in an X, which ironically, the cross belongs to Christ anyway. But anyway, so it's just our way of constantly fighting that battle. So, but I just strongly believe that nothing can stop us from doing what we do, including COVID. Mm -hmm. that's, that's impacted over 60 million people globally. Mm -hmm. For us, in fact, I think it is no better time to sit down and reflect during these unprecedented times, to think about what really, what really matters to you. And I think this is a perfect time during Christmas that hope is around the corner. But in order for you to have hope, you must believe. So George, when I was growing up, one of the things that I always remembered during Christmas time was watching Charlie Brown as a child. Do you, do you remember watching that? Charlie Brown, yes I do actually. Yeah. Wow, you brought back a lot of memories because sometimes I talk to people here, like the kids here and I go, oh, do you know Barney? And they look, is Barney and I'm like what how can you not know Barney and and I realized that the Australians here had a total different network sorry I wouldn't give Barney to anything but Charlie Brown as well you brought back a lot of memories so that was one of my favorite favorite episodes because Linus is one of the characters and they're doing a they're doing a Christmas play I believe and one of the things that he tells Charlie Brown I think they're looking for a Christmas tree they can't find the right Christmas tree and they're so focused on the materialistic things of Christmas, like the Christmas tree and the wow. things like that. So Linus recites what the true meaning of Christmas is. The verse from Luke 2, 8 through 14, which says, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round them. They were surely afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in a swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And then he ends with, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Wow, that is something you don't really hear anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. So and I I love watching that episode every Christmas. Yeah. It's very interesting you brought up Charlie Brown and the I actually I wasn't a huge fan of Charlie Brown, but um I did watch it when I was when there was no Barney on or anything equivalent. So but it's interesting to if I ask you when they played that or when they filmed that and when they premiered it on TV, it was probably let's say 10, 20 years ago. Between ten and twenty years ago, they still play it actually right. every every year for it. Christmas. Yeah, yeah. It's oh right, okay. Yeah, yeah. But you will never see, or you will rarely see, 
films created now to wrap your mind around what Christmas actually means. And unfortunately, and weirdly enough, I don't know why this is the case, but on every dollar bill you have, it says God and God we trust, correct? Mm-hmm. But yet America, I just, when, whenever I go there, I get really intrigued. Why is everything season's reading? And they just don't, they just move away from Merry Christmas. And it's actually reverse here. We use a lot of Merry Christmas here, a lot more often than season's greeting, which is strange. I find that we're a little bit more secular here in a way. So the challenge we face is I really believe that there is social evolution happening. I, I believe there's another social evolution of from Christianity to nothing or fading away that, um, that faith of ours. And I think that's another way of, of what they do. And we used to see Passion of the Christ or like a, uh, Easter film come up East, every Easter, but now no, there's absolutely nothing, and it's very hard to find something. So there's no content, is what I'm saying, and and whether it's an agenda-based item or just trying to get Christ out of the, the picture, but we do things in reverse. We want to have platform for our people where they still feel connected. And that's why we introduced the film, Emmanuel. And basically, Emmanuel is the drama we played, but in a, in a very, and obviously in a film form. So it's been pre-recorded, edited, etc. It is done using high-quality cameras. So again, mm-hmm. and in fact, it's done in the ancient language of Aramaic, mm-hmm. as well as a little bit of Latin. And that's... That's yeah. That's just to give you that the feeling of being there. Uh, you said Aramaic. Is that the Aramaic that we speak right now, or is this Nishanatika that is used in during Raza? Good question. Because there is a lot of you know, there's I wouldn't call them theories, but there's different kinds of Aramaic, and the Aramaic we're using. Some might not call it Aramaic. It's the Lishanati that we use in church. And we wanted to do it a little bit more authentic, which is actually slightly different to what they spoke back then. But for us, it was trying to bring back a little bit of our own language into it. And there's a lot of words you'll be familiar when you when you listen to it. You'll you'll be able to make out what what they're saying. Obviously, we'll have subtitles um, in English for you to understand further. But it's re-educating our people. So, for example, there is words like toady in it. Toady meaning thank you. And mm-hmm. we, we normally say, what, basima raba? Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of people use basima. I still use it, to be honest. I, I don't think I've we ever taught, used toady. We taught my nephew to say toady. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Toady. So and, and it's beautiful to know your own language, like mm-hmm. the true words. And even though it might be one word, but it's one word better than no words. And mm-hmm. And I think that's what you'll find in this film. There's, there's recognizable words. It might sound confusing at first because there's what we call nakuptaneta, which is feminizing uh, a word. Um, so, for example, whilst that sounds like you're speaking to a female, but we're, mm-hmm. we're referring to God. So it's just, it's a bit of an education piece as well of what the language used to be like. It's just to bring a bit of that authenticity back. 
And I think it's, it's something different. The story obviously hasn't changed, but what we've tried to do is actually be a little bit more theological in it to bring the true meaning of Christmas and what actually happened as much as we possibly can, obviously, um, without trying to steal away too much from the, the story itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, the kings didn't come immediately after Christ was born. It took them quite a bit of time to come. And you will see that transition in the film that we've made. Mm-hmm. So some people might say, but we've actually done it based on our theological forefather uh, commentary teachings with, with the help of some of our bishops in the Assyrian Church of the East. So it's not just meant that the way I envisioned it, it's the way our forefathers have envisioned or have uh, read it, written it in their commentaries. So we've tried being very authentic mm-hmm. and as much as possible. There were times where it's almost impossible to do it. So we've got a lot of limitations, whether it's funding, whether it's uh, just location-wise. And to be honest with you, with Australia, Australian weather, we, we say that Australia has, or Sydney in particular has four seasons in one day. So we would schedule in to go for a Saturday shoot and then it would pour down raining and then three hours later the sun comes out and, and then it starts to hail again. So it's just the kinds of limitations and challenges we had. But again, nothing stopped us. Yeah. Yesterday we filmed we filmed until 1 a.m. So and it was just trying to maintain the energy. And I was there from 9 a.m. and I was home at 1 a.m. Wow. So a very, very, very long hours. But glory to God. And and of course the cast and crew, Isan from Diamond Productions, uh, is the DOP. Uwergis as well been amazing and Martina they've been really good good help and absolutely amazing and and I can almost sense that God has been with us throughout the challenges as well and without him we couldn't do anything impossible mm-hmm. so back to the to the language aspect because I'm really curious about that did you have to train the actors on on how to say certain words and and speak the shanatika when they're saying their lines? Yeah, it was probably the hardest thing to do for the film, to be honest. Uh, like I said, it's very familiar. It's very similar to the everyday Assyrian language, but it's a bit more intense in a way. Um, mm-hmm. It's got the ha, the ha, the ta. It's like the kha. It's very, very intense and full on. We had to get it translated, obviously. Uh, we had it translated three times, so it was filtered down three times through a series of people. And that was just to make sure that we're not mistranslating either. Obviously the level of accuracy is never going to be a hundred percent, but we did our best with filtering it through three, three priests and bishops until we got what we thought would be near perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once we got the script, we would, we would have like, you know, video call over Zoom or Skype with the actors and have a bit of that one-on-one session. And then I would record my voice and get them to repeat after me. And we did all that, but it was still very hard when you're on set. You actually don't almost know what you're saying. 
So you got to tell them what the story is. You got to tell them what you're saying, what they're saying. What the scene is and explain the scene. What the scene is, exactly. And you got to explain it to them because about 70% of your of um, communication is through body language. So, so imagine trying to act physically from a body language perspective with emotions and eyes and movement. And then you got to remember those lines in Aramaic, which is a foreign language to you almost. Mm-hmm. And and then you have the the mashallah the Aussie accent khachaya the 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 you know it's it's not soft it's you know it's a bit it's a bit you know shortened and slang and it's just in the league of its own when it comes to the sound of the the accent so you got to make sure that not only they're saying it right but the accent has to be tuned in right as well. Mm-hmm. So would you say that was the that was the hardest part the the language absolutely. barrier? The language barrier was absolutely the hardest part, and we got there in the end. Um, there was a lot of effort put into it, and mind you, we've only had let's say about two months worth of filming because it was a last minute thing. Or with the COVID, you know, it didn't help the situation at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was definitely the challenge we faced in the filming of Emmanuel. And I really liked what you said also that it depicts the story of Jesus' birth, but in relation to the Assyrian Church of the East is theology. So yeah. how difficult was that to, to kind of coincide? Yeah, it's similar to reading the Bible, for example, when Jesus walked, for example, from Jericho to Nazareth or vice versa you immediately plant an image in your mind where it's like walking from here and just maybe down the road, three kilometers to your right and you find the place, but it's a lot bigger than that. And the way I picture the the Bible, and especially if you go to Israel, for example, Israel is like a pop-up version of the Bible where you see things to a larger scale. I was actually tired driving from Jericho to Nazareth, let alone walking it. <laughs> I was tired sitting on what they call a telefreak from from the bottom to the, the top of the mountain. I was just tired sitting there in that hot little dome thing. I remember sitting there and this Israeli man was talking to me and it was really, really hot in this bubble thing, um, telefreak, cable cars. He was wearing jeans and I'm wearing shorts because I can't handle heat. And he's talking to me. I just completely tuned out. He goes to me, uh, hello, I'm talking to you like that. And I'm like, oh, sorry, I can't concentrate when I get overly hot. So the way I see it is, well, how did they do it back then? When the three ki- oh, actually, there weren't three kings. There was more than three kings, in fact. I believe there was 12 wise men. And that's another thing where where today's movies just put three, for example. It was a lot more than three. Um, so do you depict that in the movie then? We don't. And we don't because of funding reasons, to be ah, honest. Okay. Um, it wasn't possible to do because we do have real camels and it was a three-hour ride to the camels. And it was very difficult to deal with them only because that that's where the military base was as well. So... In fact, when we were shooting aerial shots through a drone, we were speaking to the, the Air Force Tower so that we have a specific time, time frame. So we had to 
take off a certain time and we had literally nine minutes to shoot and it would have to come straight down. So it was very difficult, very costly, but again, we managed to do it. Unfortunately, not the way we wanted it to. We wanted, you know, we wanted 12 camels, but the poor man only had three. <laughs> so, and it was just that they're the kind of limitations, unfortunately. And the way I was, I was telling my team that this is our first step into a good production film. And there's a lot out there, and I hear there's one coming soon as well from the US. It's called Passion of Blessed Passion Mary. Of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I've seen a bit of snippets, and it looks fantastic. And when I see things like that, I actually get really, really proud. And again, I come back to the word hope, and I go, yes, we do have hope. Because the talent is there. The mseta is there. The support is there. But we can't stop. We can't start something and not finish it. Mm-hmm. And whilst I've been under so much pressure working full time for a Korean company, mind you, it's it's been a challenge in itself to try and have that work life balance and then the film come in as well. So yes, we've tried being authentic. We couldn't get those twelve camels. We got three at least, <laughs> but there's a lot of other stuff that we have in there, even from. Luishta, for example, we won't be into a typical Mary wearing blue and white, for example. Mm. Uh, the shoes were, were created by hand based on how we, we looked at some historical references as, as what shoes looked like, and we actually created them by hand. There's a lot of that that you will see, and hopefully this is not the first and not the last. There's been a lot of films, Assyrian films that we've done in the past, and a lot that are that are being done as we speak and hopefully we don't stop there we should all work together i mean imagine you know they say two heads is better than one it would be absolutely amazing to do something at a global level and why not and recently there was a i think it's a series called the chosen i don't know if you've heard of it again it's free to watch and you just download the app and you can watch the whole series why can't we be like that it's difficult, it's hard, it's challenging, there's limitations, but nothing is impossible. Mm-hmm. What other difficulties did you find with the filming? I mean, from going to a naval air base and, and having to shoot a scene in nine minutes. The only other thing that I find a bit difficult, and I think every Assyrian can relate to this, when you invite someone over at six, they rock up at nine. When you invite someone to a wedding at seven, they'll come at 10. I think the scheduling was probably the third difficult thing that we faced. Mm. It was just trying to get, it's hard to get one Assyrian on time. So imagine having 30 or 40. <laughs> so it was, um, look, it was, it was good at the end, but it's the scheduling that was really difficult because, look, everybody here is volunteering, including mm. myself. Uh, no one's being paid for it at all. Mm. Uh, God bless them all, you know, mm-hmm. from from baby Jesus to the shepherds to the kings to Mary to Joseph. They're all hardworking people. They're all adults. They all have a full-time job. And just trying to find that moment that we can all collectively come together to shoot has been very difficult. But glory to God, it's just things have fallen in place really well, although mm-hmm. very stressful, but it was manageable. And I think if you have... Like Christ said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, then you can move those mountains. And those mountains aren't those mountains and blue mountains in Sydney. 
it's those mountains of challenges, those mountains of obstacles, uh, those mountains that come your way that seem to be impossible to move. And I think that's the, that's the train of thought I had that gave me courage to go on. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell my team. Just I relate back to what Christ himself said. If you have that, uh, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, then you can move those mountains. And that's what we live by and that's what we continue doing. And it's our, our hope, our courage, and, it, and it's the thing that will get us to the end. So how long did it take to do the filming? When can we see it? When will the release date be? So the filming uh, took a very long time. I, I, I don't know how long, but I can tell you that we've been onto this film for two months because that's the time we started. And that's the time when that conversation with Bashar Ahmed. So we literally only had two months to do it. And typically a film takes about a year or two years and sometimes three years, depending on the scale of it. For something of this production, you would need a full year as a bare minimum to to finish something of good quality. Now, we're very pedantic about the way we've shot everything. We've shot things about three, four times until we got it right. Yesterday, they say don't work with children and animals. And yesterday, we had nothing but children and animals um, on set. So it was super hard dealing with donkey. And a lot of people think donkey was used with humility. Yes, that's correct. But also a donkey is probably the most stubborn animal by nature. So trying to get that donkey to move, I had a Big Mac right in front of the donkey to see if that would intrigue the donkey to start walking, but it just wouldn't move. So that took a lot of time. I think your strategy with the Big Mac was not what the donkey wanted. Yeah, I might downgrade it to cheeseburger next time. (laughs) But it just, it was things, it's things like that that take time and... And if that gets delayed, then every other scene after that gets delayed. So yeah. and a lot of my filmmaker friends and colleagues would know that as well. So that's the part that takes time to finish. And God willing, God willing, uh, it's still in post-production mode at the moment, but it should be released closer to Christmas. And it will be available to all our American brothers and sisters, and not just American, <laughs> but also our European uh, friends and family, our community globally. This hopefully isn't the, the first and not the last, and it's not the first and it's not the last. There's another film going out there, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, the only thing I would say to my community is you don't need to be a a director, a filmmaker, a creative, an actor, or anything like that, to to be able to participate. Your support, whether it's financial, whether it's just moral or whatever, um, doesn't have to be financial. And I and in I had an interview recently with Muna. I get I actually get embarrassed to ask for financial support because I think even with a dollar you can make something if you've got the passion for anything. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's going to look, you know, the film's going to end up looking like it's worth a dollar. But but the support is just being there for someone. Mm-hmm. And I think making a phone call or reaching out or sending messages, we, we've received so many beautiful messages from people just, just that help us, you know, we're human at the end of the day. Whenever we get face challenges, 
we sometimes think, can we not do this? Maybe we should stop. Maybe we should cancel. We start getting, we start, we get placed into this mindset where we believe things are, are becoming impossible. But when we read those messages that give us some sort of hope, some sort of courage, especially from our own people, Aturaya, mm -hmm. saying, we can't wait to watch this film. I can't wait. So imagine hearing someone sitting there behind a computer waiting for your product to be finished so they can watch it, so they can welcome it in their own homes. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I don't take any credit for this film at all. Uh, I've just, as a servant of Christ, I've done it. Nothing more. I don't, I don't need a credit of some sort. So all glory to God, but at the same time, the support from our people has never been more important. And I encourage every single Assyrian, whether you're half Assyrian or a quarter, quarter Assyrian and Puerto Rican or whatever, I think it's important for you to support every filmmaker globally and anything, not just filmmaking, anything that's creative. If it's something like the Youth's Got Talent, for example, that we did, the Assyrian podcast is the one of the most amazing things. And I was, you know, I was speaking to you the other, like when it first started, I was like, I love the idea of it. It's so great. I'm like, we should do this and that. And all of a sudden I went on this project management mode and I'm like, oh, hold on, this is actually not mine. So <laughs> settle back down. <laughs> so I'm sure you understand, you know, from a Syrian podcast point of view, you, when, when someone replies to you or you get a message, a kind message saying, Oh, thank you very much for that podcast. That was amazing. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Even if you get that little tick on Facebook saying, love mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. That is the most beautiful encouragement you can get from our own people. You're being recognized in a way, not recognition. The recognition is just, let's go, let's do more of this for our mm -hmm. own people. Mm -hmm. We've got nothing more than, than this. You're sitting in your house in, yeah, in Arizona. I'm back in Sydney. So, but then we've got something in between us. We've got this video call that's available to us. So we've mm -hmm. made it possible. Yeah. What might seem impossible. I didn't have to travel. Unfortunately, I wish it was that case. I didn't have to travel to you even. <laughs> so whoever's interested in future projects, let's connect. Um, let's, let's all be one voice, one talent. We've got a thousand different opinions and yes, there'll be times where we'll have disagreements, but things will be made possible as long as the love, faith, hope, and courage is there. Mm -hmm. And that's how I'd like to end off the film, Emmanuel. Beautifully said. And, and I know you mentioned support and it's not necessarily support in a monetary way their social media. So even if you share the link or share the website or um, share a podcast episode, tell uh, one of your family or your friends like, Hey, I heard this, this new project coming along or whatever it may be. That's a Syrian. You're supporting it, not necessarily in a monetary way, but you know, in a, spreading it through word of mouth or through oh, social absolutely. media. And, and I think it's never been easier to share news. Now, now it's even easier. You just click on the share button and it's, and shared to all your friends, not just the ones you pick. It's, there's no more Chinese whispers, <laughs> so to speak. So just to give you an example, with our trailer that we have on YouTube, if you search Emmanuel the Film, there's quite a few Emmanuel the Film films, I guess. But we've already reached, I think, 
close to 60,000 uh, views on that. Mm -hmm. So, and it doesn't mean that 60,000 Assyrians, but it's possibly 60,000 Nakhraya or foreigners or non Assyrians that will get a glimpse of who Assyrians are. Mm -hmm. And 60,000 might not sound great, but that's 60,000 views, that's 60,000 screens, potentially five people watching each screen. So, and, and like I told my Bible study class, it's not about how many people, it's about showing who we are to the world and eventually be pulchanan, and they'll know who Assyrians are. It's the same Assyrians back then that we had the ancient empires that the whole world pretty much used to bow down to them. We still exist and we still carry on their, their work. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us what the website is to Emmanuel? So if anybody wants to learn a little bit more about the film and, and just keep up with, with the updates yeah. and things like that. Absolutely. It's, it's as simple as EmmanuelTheFilm.com, but it's Emmanuel with an E, thefilm.com. Okay, beautiful. We'll put that in the show notes as well for anybody curious. This is a question that we ask all of our guests on the Assyrian podcast. If there's one thing that you can say to all Assyrians, to all of our listeners around the world, globally, what would that one thing be? A very good question. And... Um... I think my, the theme of today was wrapped around the togetherness um, of being part of that one community, being part of that one body as the Assyrians. And as the name in itself, your podcast, the Syrian podcast, it represents our community. And I think it's very important to participate in at least one thing, whether it's something that you have a skill or talent or just as simple as support. So I think um, make those impossibilities to possibilities. And no matter what skill set you have, I can guarantee that you are ordained to do something. You may not be a shamash or a shamashta. You might not be a fasha or a bishop or a, or a doctor, but you're, you're ordained to do something in life. You've got a purpose, and I think you've got to use that purpose. Unlock it, unleash it, un unwrap your gift that God has given you and use it for our own purpose. And that's just just work towards our Assyrian nation. Itan or umtan. It's like a bird with two wings. You gotta have two wings for the bird to fly. And I think that should be your focus. Thanks so much for tuning in. I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a safe and happy new year. I also want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us wherever you're listening. Also, if you know someone who you think should be on the podcast, please reach out to us. You can find more information about nominating future guests on our website. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.